Welcome back to another episode of Extra Innings, the Phillies podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm Matt Breen, and I'm joined, as always, by... Scott Lauber. And Bob Rookover. And today we, we dig into, once again, another Phillies, classic Phillies game. Maybe it's not a classic game if you're, if you're a Phillies fan, but it's a definitely an important game in franchise history. It was Game 5 of the 2011 National League Division Series against the Cardinals. And it was a game that, you know, we, we don't we talked about games being the biggest wins or worst losses. I don't think there's been a Phillies game in franchise history with more ramifications than this game. It was the last game of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, ever in Phillies history. And it was the last night, really, that Roy Halladay was Doc. You know, you could say that he would that was Doc on the mound. That was the last night of his career. If the, you've, Todd Zalecki is our special guest on the podcast this week and, and Todd, if you have a book out called Doc, the life of Roy Halladay. And once, um, you know, the Hollywood producers turn your, your book into a movie, I think they would end Roy Halladay's baseball career on the mound that night. Yeah. Well, thanks first. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back on the, uh, inquirer platform. Um, but yeah, no, it's, this, this was the last kind of great game of, of Roy Halladay's career. No doubt about it. When you think about everything that was at stake in an elimination game, uh, Roy Halladay, Cy Young winner, Chris Carpenter, Cy Young winner, and not only were they two Cy Young winners, they were like best friends. They came up with the Blue Jays together. They struggled together. They talk about their, you know, back when they were with the Blue Jays, prospects with the Blue Jays, they talked about their insecurities and their self-doubts and their anxiety about being successful at the big league level. And then to have the game turn out like it did, you know, a one nothing game was just, you know, again, terrible game for Phillies fans. But when you stack it up, like greatest pitched games in, in postseason history, it's got to be in the conversation somewhere, I would think. One of three, uh, unless there, there have been any since then, and, and I don't think there have been one, only three, one nothing um, deciding games in the postseason, right? It was the 62 World Series Game 7, Ralph Terry, uh, for the Yankees, 91 World Series, Morris Smoltz, uh, Game 7, the 10-inning game, and then this. I think that's it. Yeah, that, that is that is it. And, you know, I just watching that game, the other day, I was watching it, on, uh, watching it on YouTube there, and, and you obviously knew what was going to happen, but you see that run score in that first inning, and you kind of know what Roy Halladay's career is like after that and what happened to him a few years ago with the, the, with the plane crash and you're just kind of like, it was, it was a weird game to watch. I don't know how you guys felt about watching it, but it was weird to watch it from first pitch to, to the final, final out when Ryan Howard collapsed on the field. Yeah. Todd, I, I read the chapter in your book and then I watched the game and uh, maybe this is common knowledge, but I didn't know this, that he injured, Roy Howdy injured his back in the first inning. Yeah, it was, it was the, it was the, it was the second inning and Yeah, it was the second inning, but, you know, everybody remembers how the following spring he came out and uh, Ken Rosenthal wrote a story for Fox Sports and talked to some scouts and was like, Roy does not look the same. His velocity is down. His breaking stuff's not the same. His his delivery seems to be a little bit out of whack, and Roy just blasted the report. But then, you know, he struggled all that season in his final two years, and um, it turned out his back was this big issue. And when I talked with Brandy Halliday for the book, one of, one of our first conversations, I was going through some of the big games and, and I said, let's talk about game five. And, and she said, well, this is the game that kind of ended it all. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, in the second inning, 
um, he told me afterwards he felt this pop or this hard snap in his lower back. And that turns out, and he ended up finishing the game and, and pitching great for, for uh, eight innings. But that kind of uh, kick-started his back problems and his, and his, and his slide was was that back that back that he had really kind of been overworking or or just working so hard since he was a you know a teenager really finally kind of gave out on him. Yeah, I uh, I agree, Todd. That it, it was weird to watch, uh, not only because we know where Halliday's career goes from this point, but you think about the careers of so many of the principal players in this game. It was the last win of Chris Carpenter's career. He goes 0-2 in 2012, then has thoracic outlet syndrome and doesn't pitch again. Uh, Ryan Howard, obviously never the same player again after he goes down with the ACL. Um, so many careers and fortunes of so many of the, these players go in, in such drastic directions after this game. That's, I think, what makes it such a kind of ep- epic game. Not only the outcome and, and how great the game was, but you know, the offshoots of this game and how, I mean, it's the last game, the Philly, it's the last Phillies playoff game that we have. Um, you know, it's also the 34 year anniversary of Black Friday, which I thought was amazing. It was, um, it was also on a Friday, 34 years, holiday wearing 34. Like there's a lot of weird, weird stuff um, uh, around this game for me. My, 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 the biggest thing I remember is a few months later after spring training begins, um, I went to Jupiter, Florida to talk to the Cardinals about that game and that series um, because it, it continued an unbelievable run for them. Uh, you know, that was probably one of the most unlikely World Series runs in the history of the game because they were dead in the water at the end of August um, you know, and they, they would have had to play a one game series against the Phillies. I mean, against the uh, Braves for to get into the playoffs if the Phillies hadn't beaten the Braves on the last day of the season with the help of the greatest play of Michael Martinez's <laughs> career running down <laughs> ball. And Michael Martinez, who, by the way, I saw play last year for the Lancaster or I guess Lancaster was playing against them and he was on the other team, which I couldn't believe that. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun going over the and talking to the Cardinals. Um, you know, Skip Schumacher had the RBI double that won the game for him, and he I, I I quoted him as saying the highlight of my career against, in my opinion, the best pitcher in baseball. Um, oh, but my favorite reaction was, "Okay, Chris, you you ruined Roy Halladay's uh, bid for a World Series. Any empathy at all?" And he said. Nope. He said he won't like that, but that's all right. We're both competitors, and that's what this is all about. Hopefully, they'll get a shot at some point in time, maybe when I'm done. And, you know, what what Scott just said, they were both done at that point, you know, makes it all the more uh, poignant that it was over. You know, I didn't end up putting this in the book, but um, I was talking with Jimmy Rollins about that game, and, and he said something similar to kind of what you guys were talking about which is he talked to his agent. I don't know if it was like in the days immediately following it or not, but he told, he called, he was talking to his agent. And he said, that's it. We're done. And he's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, that was that. We won't be back here where this is, that was our last shot. He said, he just had a sick feeling that that was going to be the last time the Phillies were ever going to be competitive like they were that season. And he ended up being right. 
you know, you know, just just go back one second to the Cardinals. The Cardinals that season were part were were involved in games that led to five champagne celebrations because they had been in Philadelphia when the Phillies clinched oh, wow. that year, huh. and then they and then they clinched a wild card spot on the last day of the season, and then they have three more uh, on their way to the World Series. Yeah, I uh, they won 16 of their last 21 uh, in the regular season. You mentioned how they clinched, um, you know, on the last night of the year. That was maybe one of the craziest nights in baseball history. I was covering the Red Sox, and they had their own drama going on in Baltimore, and then the Yankees come, you know, the Yankees um, blow a huge uh, – or uh, blow a huge lead against Tampa Bay. That's how the uh, you know with the on the Longoria home run and what's going on in Atlanta with the Phillies winning in 13 innings. Like we may never see a night like that again. And that's how the Cardinals make the playoffs and ultimately end up knocking the Phillies out. But at least the Red Sox tonight was catered. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, 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 no. It was in Baltimore. I don't think they could get the Popeye's chicken because the, deli- the delivery <laughs> place was right near Fenway. <laughs> so right. unless they had it on the way. All right. Sorry. So Scott was in Scott was in Baltimore, but Bob and Todd, you you were at the ballpark that night, and I know you, Todd. You said Jimmy Rollins said that this was the end, but. You guys being around the team, did you sense that this was the end that night, or did you did you go into spring training in twelve thinking they were just going to run it back again? I don't know about you, Bob, but I thought that they were still going to be good just because the rotation was so dominant. You know, with Halliday, uh, you know, Oswald wasn't back that year, but they still had Doc Cliffley, Hamels. You know, Vance Worley was coming off a decent rookie year. You thought he might be a decent bottom of the rotation guy. And, even, and they just went and they just went and got Papelbon, who you know, who who has the all time record of saves for the Phillies, but who, you know was at that you thought, wow, getting him, what a great addition to the back of the bullpen. He really did. Yeah, and even if even with Howard like blown out his Achilles, like oh, he's only going to miss a few months. You know, you knew the offense wasn't as awesome as it had been in in seasons past. But I just I thought I just thought that pitching was so good that they would be able that they would be able to overcome any, any tweaks. And, you know, they had always been able to make a big trade. So, you know, maybe they weren't going to win 102 games, but I still thought that they were going to be one of the better teams in the National League. Although then when you realize that they were going to – the next spring when you realize they're going to be without Chase and without yeah. Howard for a while, you, you start to think a little bit, wow, that's, that might be too much to overcome. But, yeah, you're right. The, the pitching was so good that, and and let's face it, we were conditioned to just believe they were going to be good for a long time because they had been good for so long at that point. I mean, yes, it was five straight divisions, but really, the Phillies for the entire century to that point had been a a good team almost every year, even if they didn't get to the playoffs, they were always a good team. But as we know now, <laughs> you know, all this happened ten months earlier. They they assembled four aces so that that was built for you know world series plural not not just one season i uh you know you guys um todd and bob covering this game i mean how did you you know it's a night game you guys are um you know working on deadline and you're sort of playing the game through in your head i think probably like how's this going to end i mean did you sort of have a feeling like they were going to figure out a way to get to Carpenter and score. I mean, they, you know, they obviously had, you know, the opportunities in the, uh, 
what the fourth inning when Abanez flies out deep to right, um, they uh, they have the um, you know the the situation where Utley gets thrown out stealing, and maybe that changes that inning, and and then the eighth inning, um, you know, uh, uh, but you know, I mean, what, what was your feeling kind of going through it? I mean, was there after the season that they had had just kind of this feeling like they'd pull it out, or were you sort of fatalistic the whole time? I I because it was only one nothing, I thought that somebody would have a shot to hit one out and tie it up. So even going into that last inning, I was like, well, you have Utley, Pence, and Howard. And even though Howard was pretty bad that whole series, you know, they kept mentioning how he's like 0 for 13, 0 for 14, yeah. and, you know, entering that game. I just thought because it, it was one nothing, all they needed was somebody to pop one, you know. And, and so in that sense, I, I, I thought, oh, okay, there's still a chance. You know how sometimes you write a game story, you're on deadline, and – You've like totally committed. Even yes. You probably shouldn't. I, I, I had not totally committed to that point that, you know, the Phillies were going to get knocked out. You never know how one of these games are going to play out, but you never think it's going to end one nothing either. And, you know, but maybe that's just a fitting way for uh, for these two guys. Really, I, I think this is true. Is this the only time they faced each other in their careers? Um, yes, it, it is. Right. So yes. the, the one time they face these two good, great friends face each other, it's a one nothing game. Uh, th- that seems fitting, uh, even even though you don't feel like you know it could possibly end this way, and this could be the way the Phillies dynasty ends. You know, a Phillies dynasty that really start not dynasty, a divisional dynasty, but their you know their great run ends with um, you know without them scoring because the, the great run started with them being this dynamic, incredible offense Mm -hmm. in their last game where it all ends is without them scoring a run. What, what made Halliday and Carpenter such great friends? Todd, I know they, they played together in Toronto. So, you know, uh, uh, Carpenter was a first round high school draft pick. And then a couple of years later, Halliday was a first round high school draft pick. And they, they kind of met a little bit in spring training. I think it was spring training in 97. And um, in that season, Halliday started in double a uh, Carpenter was in triple a Carpenter gets called up. Doc takes his place. He goes up to triple tri- a Syracuse and then they, they demote Carpenter back down to triple a. And that's when they kind of started becoming friends. And if you look at like the baseball America prospect rankings in that time, like they are both top 50 prospects and in Toronto, they were heralded as the next Pat Hankin, next Roger Clemens. Like this is the, this is the next Clemens Hankin one, two punch or, or whatever you want to call it. The next Dave Steve, Jimmy key duo. Uh, they're going to save the blue Jays and they're going to make them, you know, take on the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Orioles and the American league East. And they just really struggled early, early in their careers. And so they kind of would get together after workouts and grab dinner at night and kind of talk a lot about how, you know, the pressures that they were feeling and kind of the concerns that they had and, and the struggles they were having. Like, Hey, you know, you know, Chris Carpenter, uh, he, he had kind of a cool story. He said, you know, back to, back in the day, uh, minor leaguers for laundry, they would just throw all their stuff in one laundry bag and then they would throw the laundry bag into these big bins and these big washing machines. And he said, back then we just wanted to have, um, leather belts instead of a stretchy belts. And we wanted to have our clothes laundered, like throwing them in a laundry bin and having a real clubby do your laundry and put them back in your locker rather than just throwing this wet sack of bag, <laughs> wet sack of uniform in. It's like, that's all we were worried about back then. That's all we wanted. We just wanted a real belt and real laundry. 
And, you know, but everybody else was saying, you guys are going to be the ones to beat the Yankees. You guys are going to beat the Red Sox. So they kind of had this shared experience together of this incredible amount of pressure, but not really knowing the way to get it done. And um, from that, they kind of bonded and they just remained close for, you know, really through, through, through the rest of uh, Roy's life. Did they both have a, a tie with Harvey Dorfman? Yeah, so they both had a tie with Dar- Harvey Dorfman as well. So because they were struggling on the mental side, um, which is a big part of it for him, uh, Roy, Roy and Chris Carpenter met Harvey Dorfman uh, together. Har- Harvey had a bunch of clients throughout baseball. He was there one, at, at the ballpark one day to talk to one of the other Blue Jays players. And Roy had gotten the copy of the mental ABCs of pitching from his wife when he demoted him down to class a and uh roy said oh man that's 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 harvey dorfman let's go introduce ourselves and they ended up having this really long conversation and they both ended up kind of becoming disciples of harvey dorfman and you know flash forward to that game five you know chris carpenter chris was telling i talked to him last summer he was telling me how you know they had kind of stopped they had stopped talking they'd stopped texting they stopped talking there were no dinners before that game five or during that series. And he said before that game five, he kind of got into the Harvey mode of just going through his routine and going through all of his preparation because he knew that Roy was doing all the Harvey stuff as well. And if he was going to beat Roy, he needed to be just as prepared as Roy was going to be because he knew Roy was going to be ultra prepared for that start. And so, you know, they were two Harvey disciples and they both took that same mindset, the next pitch, only the next pitch, pitch matters. And you saw it kind of play out in, in that in that entire game. Todd, out of curiosity, I, when I did the story to Carpenter Cardinals, he, at one point Carpenter said, "Maybe we'll watch it together someday." It was just unfortunate that somebody had to come out on the short end, but it was a lot of fun competing against a guy who I have a lot of respect for, and how he goes about the business and how he competes. Did you ask him if he uh, if they ever did discuss the game or watch that game? Well, so you remember the famous uh, fishing trip that winter that they, they did in Brazil where, sure. you know, Roy was Roy killed, totally killed an anaconda and <laughs> saved a man. Didn't they which... jump in the Amazon River or something like that? Yeah. So, so Chris and Roy did jump into the Amazon River for a swim. Like that was like Roy was obsessed with it. He, was, he, was, he kept – the fishermen kept driving around and Roy's like, can, I, can we jump in? Can we jump in? And the guy's like, no, 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 no. They finally found a fishing spot where apparently where there weren't crocodiles, alligators, and other killer whatever, and they and they jumped in. But during that trip, so, you know, the Cardinals win the World Series. They beat the Rangers that year, right? It was the Rangers. Yeah. Um, and they were on this fishing trip with, like, I don't know, maybe a, a dozen people, and everybody wanted to talk about the World Series. Everybody wanted to talk about Game 5. And Roy and Chris were like, guys, we're not talking about Game 5. I'm here to, we're here to relax. I don't want to talk about the world series. I'm here to relax. But the only thing that Chris said that he talked about in that game, if you guys remember in the eighth inning, Carpenter single one up the middle off of yeah. Roy and Chris Carpenter said, that was the only thing I brought up. I said, but we have to talk about the fact that I got a knock off you in the eighth. inning." <laughs> <laughs> so he gave him some crap about that. Roy basically told him to, uh, to bleep off and uh, they had a laugh about it and that was it that was that was really the only extent that offseason anyway of 
of them kind of reliving reliving that game. So in the eighth inning, uh, they go down to Craig Sager, and uh, he tells a story I hadn't heard before, Todd. I wonder if if you if you if you had. Um, so they show like the team uh, a Blue Jays team photo, and Halliday and, and Carpenter are standing next to each other in the back row. And on the other side of Halliday, I think it was David Wells. And um, Sager says, you know, uh, Halliday gives David Wells a lot of credit for what, what he became in his career because David Wells once said to him, kid, if I had your arm, I'd win 25 games every year. And I kind of chuckled at the story and I thought, what's David Wells trying to say there? That like he had like this unbelievably disciplined work ethic or something and that's what got him through because that's not David Wells. And David Wells obviously had a lot of talent in his arm. Um, so I was a little unclear of where, where safe, but I also never, ever heard that, that Halliday had such a, you know, uh, had such a, or that Wells had such an impact on Halliday. Actually, Roy did, uh, he, he did talk about David Wells's influence on him in his career. You know, David Wells, if you look at his career stats, you know, he, his walk rate was like top 25 in baseball history. He almost never walked anybody. He didn't have a great arm. He certainly wasn't a great, you know, a, a physical specimen, so to speak. But but he pitched without fear, and he and he pitched to fill up the strike zone. So he was super super aggressive, and he had a ton of success with it. And one of Roy one of Roy's problems, he had a lot of problems early in his career. But one of his problems is is that he just wasn't really aggressive. He was kind of tentative. He would kind of nibble the corners, and then you know he'd fall behind two zero three zero three one. And then he'd be like, all right, well, I can't throw anything for a strike, so I guess I gotta throw my four, you know, my my two seamer, four seamer down the middle of the plate. And he would just get rocked. And um, you know, and I talked with David Wells last summer about this, and he said, you know, I, I would have Roy come out and, and kind of watch my bullpens. And he's like, I was in his ear all the time about being aggressive, not being scared. He said, Hey, you got eight guys on the field that are supposed to catch the baseball. Don't be afraid to let them do a little bit of work. And it did, didn't really sink in right away with Roy, you know, you know, like, I guess anytime you're kind of going through something, you know, if somebody gives you advice right away, you don't always take it immediately. But as Roy kind of developed, he, that thought process, that mindset from David Wells kind of remained. And, and then you saw what he became, which was, he was the same exact guy, except with better stuff. And he would just be like, I'm not going to just waste a pitch. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fill up the strike. zone whenever I can, and that's exactly what he did. And I think his walk rate, is just ahead of David Wells's now if you look at the all-time list. So we've been doing this series of what-if articles on Inquire.com about what if this happened in Philly's history and how would that have changed you know, the course of Philly's history. And one of them that sticks out to me is what if the Phillies series in, in Atlanta, the final series of the season, went a different way. If, I know there was a lot of talk about the way Charlie Manuel was managing the Phillies that week and he was balancing the – the integrity game of keeping um, the Phillies playing the win because it had an impact on the wild card standings between the Cardinals and the Braves, but also balancing the fact that he needed to get his team in the right spot for the playoffs. It, and it, it, it went deeper than that though, because and it, it did, he, he got the Phillies clinched against the Cardinals as we talked about with the, the, the first of the Cardinals being around for a champagne celebration on September 17th. And then they proceeded to lose eight games in a row. And, you know, Charlie was giving some guys off and stuff, but he was a little concerned about the way his team was playing at that point. They weren't, not only were they losing and they, they also weren't scoring. They'd, they'd scored zero runs twice in that stretch and, and one run two other times. And 
Charlie is not never comfortable when his team's not scoring, as you guys well know. Uh, so he wanted to get things right before they got into the postseason. So it had to do with that too. But you know, but to your point, they go to Atlanta and they sweep the Braves, uh, who are in the midst of this wild card chase with the Cardinals. If the Braves take two out of three games there, the Phillies never even see the Cardinals, and the Cardinals never even see the postseason. Uh, so it's just. It, as we talked about before, it was just a crazy end to that season. And it's even started before that last day of the season, which was the craziest ending of, probably of all time. So if if the Phillies don't sweep the Braves and you know the Braves even just win one game, they force a tiebreaker with the Cardinals. And for a hypothetical sense, we say the Braves beat the Cardinals. They win the wild card. Now the Phillies are playing – Instead, the Cardinals and the DS are playing the Diamondbacks. Does that change the course of Phillies history? Absolutely. The Phillies would not have lost to the Diamondbacks, I don't think. You know, the, the, the one team you don't want to see is the St. Louis Cardinals because they've been playing – I think they were 18-6 and six in September that year. They were the team you didn't want to see. They were the team nobody wanted to see. Yeah, I mean, shades of 07 with the Rockies, right? I mean, the only team that was hotter than the Phillies going into the playoffs in 07 – we're the Rockies, and look what happened. So I think there's something to that. You know, I look back, they, they handled Atlanta pretty well that year, too. I think they were 12-6. and six. So if Atlanta had moved on, um, you know, against Bucky, um, you know, that's how that would have gone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just – the Cardinals were not the right the, – the, the team you wanted to face there. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, the Cardinals were 6-3 and three against the Phillies that season. And, and, and kind of going off of what Bob was talking about, the Cardinals were super hot in September. The Phillies finished four and eight, and you could tell there was a lot of angst or concern in Philly because uh, I, I, I put this in the in the book. Uh, Roy was asked about the Cardinals kind of dominating them during the season, and Roy actually quoted Shakespeare when asked about the Cardinals. He goes, "I came here to bury Caesar, not praise him," <laughs> which wow. is kind of cool and unexpected <laughs> from Roy. Like you know, he was so mild mattered. And so all of a sudden he starts breaking out Shakespeare saying, I came to bury Caesar, not praise him. But that was his way of saying like, yeah, okay, they, they're really good. They're really hot, but so are we. And you know one thing about, I don't know what any of the other players were, uh, if they were tight or not, but Roy really didn't pitch with any fear. Uh, and and I, I think if there was anybody that was not intimidated going in that series or nervous or whatever, it was him because he just said mentally he, 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 he would not allow that to happen to him. That quote is like a, you know, an awesome quote. But is that was Roy Halladay a guy to, to give quotes like that? Never, no. never. Like he was, he, I mean, he like after after starts and stuff. I, I always thought he was really insightful and kind of surprising. But he would never, uh, you know, say anything that forceful. And that's I I, I remember him saying that. I was like, wow, Roy Halladay is like talking about. Beating the brains in the He was he was really fun. fun to talk to when you could get him engaged in something. He mm-hmm. he he really was. I mean, you know, there there were many days you couldn't get him at all. He was not available because he was so uh, had such tunnel vision and preparing himself. But there were many times when you could get him engaged in a, in a subject where he he was just great. I remember this was even. This was the year after when the, when the Cardinal or the uh, Nationals shut down Steven Strasburg. I remember going and trying to and asking him about the Card the Nationals shutting him down, 
and him just basically saying, nah, if it was me, I would have never let it happen. This is, and you know, you, you have to know where he was coming from, where it took him for till the end of his career to even get a chance to pitch in the postseason. So he knew, you know, these opportunities don't come along every day. So, and he was great talking about it. And, and just in two more, what ifs, um, if, you know, Chase Utley's uh, long drive in the ninth inning carries just a couple more feet and gets out and over the center field fence, that's a home run to tie the game. And then also the Raul Banez, just watching it still, it looks off the bat that it's gone. And the, that was with two outs, full count in the fourth inning. And just the way that ball dies at the warning track, it's just, it's amazing how close the Phillies came in this game. To, in July, to in, in July and August, those balls are probably out. But you know, it was, it was a little cooler. Uh, it's, it's the way the cookie crumbles. And, and then you wonder if Chase had healthy knees, if that ball would have gotten out. You know, earlier in the game, Ron Darling even mentioned that he was battling injuries and he didn't have the strong lower half, and how important that is to a hitter. And I, I remember asking Chase once if he thought if he was healthy, had healthy lower lower body if that ball would have gone out and, and chase being chase said, you know, I, I really can't say, but I got to think if a healthy chase Utley has a little bit more torque in that swing, that ball probably gets out. And it's impossible to know, obviously with all these what ifs, but if Ryan Howard's Achilles does not blow out at the end of the game, even if the Phillies lose the game, Ryan Howard's Achilles doesn't blow out. He just runs the first base. His career goes on. And just looking at his stats of what that Achilles did to him, just imagine, you know, just some rough math. Ryan Howard finishes with 430 homers career, 1,300 RBIs. I looked up that to see who was in baseball history, who had those stats, and who's not in the Hall of Fame with those stats. And there's 18 players. Most of them are, you know, Barry Bonds and A-Rod, Sammy Sosa McGuire, a lot of guys from this steroid era or current players that, that aren't retired yet, like Miguel Cabrera. Um, Adrian Beltre is not Hall of Fame eligible yet. And then down the bottom of the list is Juan Gonzalez, Paul Canerco, um, Carlos Beltran, who has his own reasons for why he might might or might not get in the Hall of Fame. But do you think Ryan Howard's Achilles does not blow out there? Does he continue on a Hall of Fame track? Uh, yeah, no, to- you're right. Totally unanswerable. Um but it's certainly his career does take a, a turn right after this. And so I'm sure, I mean, you guys covered it. Um, you guys covered that half of his career. I, I only covered the first half for the first, you know, the, the prime, the, what now goes down is sort of the prime of his career, but he, uh, yeah, I guess you'd have to say, I mean, unless, unless something happened, you know, again, what, what if Ross Glow doesn't reach on that strikeout, a play that Yadier Molina probably makes 99 times out of a hundred Howard might not bat in the ninth inning. And if that happens, you know, he, I, Here, I, I, here's the thing about that though. He had been nursing this injury the entire I don't know exactly when it started, but it started in the second half of the season. He he was having problems. Uh, he had sat out some serious amount of time. Uh, so it's not blowing serious amount of time. no matter what. Well, well so that's what that's what Howard. Well, the other that's thing definitely is, what is, Howard says. I mean, I, you know, he's he's addressed that a few times, and you know, the question of like, well, what if what if it doesn't happen there? And and he, that's kind of his his answer is that it look it was probably going to happen. I mean, right. I you know. And the other the other part of it is his career had kind of been on the decline anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. he had 31 homers and 108 RBIs in 2010. 
in 33-116 in 2011, uh, but his OPS had gone down for three straight years. Um, you know, it, it just seemed, you know, that was the big, that was the big debate when he signed the, the extension in 2010 was why do this now? Because he had 2011 still to play. That was the, that was the big debate on the table. What, why do this now? Why not wait and see what happens in 2011? Um, and as it turns out, you know, and I, I always defended what the Phillies did because these other guys, Albert Pujols, for example, was signing for 10 years and still is playing. And you, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's a worse deal than Ryan Howard's was because they've been stuck with him for a long time and still are. And Prince Fielder, too. Prince, Prince Fielder's Prince, deal. Prince Fielder and, the, you know, the Rangers or wherever. It was the Brewers who did the deal. But they got lucky a little bit because he, they got out of paying him because his career ended early. But, yeah, so it's like I always defended the Phillies for doing it. But, you know, the, the other side's argument was not unjustified. I, I think best case scenario for Howard's, like say, say the Achilles, Achilles doesn't blow out and say suddenly like the offseason, it feels better or whatever. I think maybe best case scenario for him is he's probably in that Hall of Fame bubble conversation, maybe yeah. with, but, but still behind Utley and Rollins. I, I think even if Howard had never gotten hurt, I think Rollins and Utley are going to have, would have had stronger and they, they have stronger Hall of Fame uh, cases to make than Howard, you know, especially in today's day and age. Like, I feel like a lot of voters, they just look at the war, they go, oh, war, Howard's war isn't that great. So shoot him out the door, you know, and I think that's going to be, you know, I, 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 th- I think that's bogus, but I think there, I think there's some. Also, there. his, peak, his peak was so high, um, you know, 06 to, to what, 10? Or you know, his peak was such a huge was was such a uh, an unbelievable peak that I don't know that there was you know unless you are in the point zero zero one percent of players who've ever played could keep could keep that up. So you know, I think that there was inevitably going to be some sort of a um, of a downward trend just because his peak was such a high peak. But to to, to Matt's point, like he hit 30, 31, 33, which was the, the declining at that point but if you could just maintain the 30 for three four more years now you're talking about a guy who's approaching 500 home runs if he gets if he gets to the 500 home run point um you know yeah i think that's the mark but it's just like the most i could give him was 430 Uh, i I just thought it was so to get the 500 you probably need him to come up earlier then he came up right. to, to start his yeah, career. The, the, and then yes, he, that's, he's that's a Hall of Famer. If he has a perfect start, if he comes up when he should have came up, but, you know, obviously. But you could, you could also make the argument maybe he wasn't ready at that point. To you come you could, either. but I think he was. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's easy to make the argument, though, was he? I mean, because he, he was – he. I, I, I've always loved Marty Wolver's story about – uh, when they scouted him his junior year, the scout the scout called Marty Wolver and said, "I can't even write a report on this guy. He hasn't made a contact. He hasn't made contact in the three days <laughs> I've seen him in his junior year." And, and Marty's like, "Yeah, well, I remember him his sophomore year. He was making contact, and the ball was going far, and so they drafted him in the fifth round. You know, and turned out pretty good." Um, maybe you guys can answer this one for me. This was driving me crazy the whole game. Uh, was there a story behind those braided necklaces that Utley, Howard, Rollins, and Polanco were wearing? I mean, they were the, the, that was the infield, and uh, nobody else had those. So I was just wondering whether there was 
there was a story there. I th- it was a- I think that I think that was one of those goofy, trendy, like copper necklace things that you know players would just somebody told them that it made okay. you feel better, and so they wore them. It, like, it was I a company called Fighten. P h i t e n, and they were they were just some scam Phil, copper necklace. Phil Sheridan wrote a column about it for the Inquirer one that's spring okay. training, I think. So they did that the whole year. Yeah, and he, yeah, I think so. And in fact, I think in on the cover of Sports Illustrated when they had the uh, well, the f- the five starting pitchers on there, I think Cliff Lee is wearing okay. one as well. And I think so, I think Charlie wore one for a little bit that spring. And somebody, I think somebody did ask these players like, "Do you actually think this works?" And they're like, "I don't know. I'm just." But they said it can't hurt, so I'm going to wear it anyway. I wrote it all year, and I think I had my best year writing that. <laughs> <laughs> What well, was the that... uh, what was the what was the clubhouse like after this game? Uh, you know, there are certain games you guys know. I, th- I think where you know something dramatic happens, and the clubhouse is kind of frozen in your mind. Like uh, you remember where everybody was standing, and and you know uh, you kind of remember it. Like you know, it's just it's it'll forever be that that image that you'll have of what the clubhouse was like that night. And you know, I've read the stories about Roy was sitting there with his with his uniform on for the longest time, and. Um, I, I was just kind of wondering, um, you know, what that scene was like. Yeah, that's that's the image that is probably one of the most memorable images of any post game locker, post game clubhouse scenario, regular season, postseason was was Ryan Howard in crutches at his locker, and then Doc at his locker, right in the corner there, right by the uh, the near the entrance to the the food room and the weight room and the training room and all that stuff in uniform, full uni, couldn't take it off. You know, it was just like so despondent, just stunned and, and sad that he had lost. And, you know, um, Utley said the same thing about before he got to the locker room. I guess he was sitting in a back hallway. Utley came in off the field and he said Doc was sitting on the ground in uniform, just kind of staring, just like almost kind of maybe replaying what happened or just trying to process what happened he said and Utley said that was his most memorable image of that post game was was Halliday alone in a in a back hallway and you know it, it was it was weird it was and Halliday is the guy you you feel for for the most because you know at least these other guys Utley and Howard and Rollins and um you know they had at least experienced winning the world series uh you know that and he he had not, and you know Oswald never did. Uh, it, I, one of my favorite memories of spring training in 2011 is the four aces, and we had the five, the fifth ace, um, and who was who was actually Vance Worley that year. But but they bring in Joe Blanton, and it was like Joe Blanton wasn't even there, and he was a World Series hero, but nobody really even recognized him as <laughs> even being there. It was so that's a vivid memory for me of that season. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks a lot for listening to Extra Innings, the Phillies podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, there's two books available about the Phillies this month. Uh, Scott Lauber's The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Phillies, and Todd Zalecki's Roy Halliday book called Doc. And uh, Bob, Bob, do you have a book to promote? I, I don't have anything in mind. <laughs> no, but but speaking of those two, no, no I, I, have, I don't have the attention span to write a book. Uh, but speaking of those two books and aces, I'd say one and one A. Oh, that's sweet. That's <laughs> Thanks, nice. Bob. You're the man. You're the man. Oh, and Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate we, it. Wait, we talked about how this was the finale of the Phillies' error, but Todd, it was a crushing loss for you as well. 
Yes. So Jim Salzberg and I wrote a book that season, a a month to month look. We somehow pitched this thing and said, "Listen, man, this team is going to win the World Series. We're we're, we're going to cover every moment the entire season. This book is going to sell like gangbusters. We got a publisher. They're like, absolutely." And Jimmy and I were sweating bullets before game five. We're going, oh, my God, what happens if they lost? And they lost. And so real quick synopsis of that, the book was going to be a hardcover. The publisher calls us a few weeks later and go, uh, yeah, we're just going to do a paperback now. Uh, but don't worry, we're still have color photos and everything like that. We're like, oh, all right. And then they call us back a couple weeks later to go, so um, we're not going <laughs> to do the color photos anymore. But we are going to have black and white photos as an insert in the middle of the book. We're like, okay, that's cool. And then they called us a couple weeks ago. So we're, we're not going to have the photos at all. We're going to be no photos in this book. <laughs> we're just going to put out a paperback. And that was it. So they basically like, yeah, this book, they pulled the plug on. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a good book. Just that Nevertheless, nobody, the book nobody, is still nobody really, read it. Nobody the book read is it. Really, still really good. Buy it after you buy the other two. So, <laughs> yeah, so, Todd, what we do with these things is we do a star of the game. Um, I don't know if you guys want to want to do that. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, um, several choices here whether it's carpenter or or if you want to go with someone with the phillies so uh i don't know who wants to go i got i got one teed up ready to go so tee it up go, all right go well, i'm going completely off the board my star of the game is uh the star of page four in the inquirer on the day after <laughs> it's got to be paul breen who is definitely the face of the fans uh, he got a, he got his own feature story out of this and uh and it was just tremendous how'd you find that Oh, the, uh, the newspapers.com archive. Todd, give us your star of the game. Uh, my, I, I think my star of the game has to be Chris Carpenter. You know, it just, it was an unbelievable performance. One of the greatest postseason pitching performances, even if it wasn't in the NLCS or World Series. To beat his best friend, to beat his best friend, one nothing, two Cy Young Award winners. I mean, how can you, how can you pick anybody different? All right, I'm going to pick Skip Schumacher. <laughs> Skip Schumacher, <laughs> just to be different. But also, he knocked in the game's only run. True. And besides that, he was great to interview when I got to <laughs> Jupiter the next spring. So, you know, he, he accounted for the only run. He gave me some good quotes. Hey, let's go with him because it was, it, it was a great run for the Cardinals. And he was, he was in the middle of it. And I'm sure it was the highlight of his career. I'm going to go with Roy Halladay. We, you know, we talk a lot about the perfect game, the no-hitter. But I think, you know, the truest test is when uh, – you know, on, on when you don't have a perfect night. And this was after reading Todd's book, you find out he had a, he pitched with an injured back and he still, you know, gave it a Doc signature performance. And it was the last night that you could point to the mound and say, that's Doc. And for Scott Lauber and Bob Brookover and our special guest, Todd Zalecki, I'm Matt Breen. Once again, you can buy the Big 50 by Scott Lauber, the Philadelphia Phillies, the men and moments that make the Phillies on Amazon or wherever you find your books. And you can you can buy Doc, the life of Roy Halladay. That's the essential book about Roy Halladay's life, all on and off the field. And that's by Todd Zalecki. That's available this month as well, wherever you buy your books. Amazon has it right here. And thanks for listening. You can subscribe to our podcast, Extra Innings. Give us a five star rating because there's no other rating you want to give us. And you can read our content at, content at Inquire.com and subscribe to our newsletter, Extra Innings. Thanks. <laughs>